3: Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. This is
0: the third year of this Writers on Recordings series featuring contemporary authors in conversation about recordings from the 92nd Street Wise Audio Archive, um, the archive which dates to the late 1940s. Um, I'm the director of the Poetry Centre there, We have poets, we also have novelists, playwrights, and um, the center began in the late 30s and we began recording everyone in the late 40s. Before we begin, I thought I would just, by a show of hands, um, how many of you have read Catherine Ann Porter? Okay. Have have any of you heard her voice before? Um, The recording that we're gonna be talking through tonight is from 1952. The predecessor of mine who, who introduced her that evening, John Malcolm Brennan, who was a lifelong friend of hers, uh, calls her the first lady of American letters. At this moment, I don't think that we would consider her reputation in the same way. In fact, one of the topics of conversation tonight will be, not that either of us knows the answer, what has happened to the reputation and readership of someone like Catherine Ann Porter. Her most well-known work is probably the, the one that had the most popular film adaptation, Ship of Fools, which uh, was published in the early 1960s after she labored on it for decades. Uh, the story that we're going to be hearing excerpts from is called Noon Wine. It was um, written in the 1930s. and It was published in a collection called Pale Horse, Pale Rider, along with that story. And um, a, a third, she didn't call them stories, she called them short novels. Um, one of the remarkable things about the evening that um, we're going to be hearing recordings from is that she read Noon Wine in in its entirety. So she went out on stage and left it two hours later. Um, This is a very unusual thing and remains an unusual thing for an author to do. It's a novel that is, I think, for her central to any of the stories that she ever created. Um, One of the things we'll be talking about a little bit is an essay that she wrote a few years later and trying to figure out where it came from, what combination of memory and autobiography and um, the mix of that and imaginative transformation led to it. To begin with, though, um, I think I'll just simply ask Rachel why she chose the, the archive is vast, as John alluded to. Why she chose Catherine M. Porter? Who is Catherine M. Porter? To to you yeah. know, and when did you first encounter her work?
2: Well, the second bit. So I've I've sort of lived in Catherine M. Porter for a long time, and I think, rather like Natalia Ginsburg, I think she dropped to the bottom of the ocean, <laughs> and, and now actually I th- I think there is a a moment when she could be understood again. And there's something that she represents about a certain fragility, a frailty, I suppose, in, in the legacy of a woman writer, that, that if that woman writer doesn't live solidly like Virginia Woolf did in a social milieu, um, Catherine Ann Porter had a, a very, very rackety life. So it interests me that the, as you say in the, in the recording, that we're going to listen to, she is introduced as the first lady of American letters. Um, that that's an extraordinary loss of <laughs> status. It's I mean I now see that there's that volume there, which in fact I did know was was coming out, the of Pale Horse, Pale Rider, which I urge you to if you're going to buy a book, make it that one, not one of mine. Um, but but when I first came upon her, you could only get her book sent over from America, there was absolutely no, um, and that seemed so extraordinary to me, whereas a, a Willa Cather or a Flannery O'Connor, you know, those are, are sort of known people here. But I discovered her because I was interested years and years and years ago in the concept of the novella as, as a sort of badly understood form. Um, and in sort of reading about it her name came up as the high priestess and great practi- practitioner of it and and in fact uh, she wrote an essay somewhere where she really scathingly uh, <laughs> sort of warns anyone against describing what she does as practices as the novella um, she absolutely couldn't stand the word but Uh, Whatever these forms are that she writes in, they, again, the Natalia Ginsburg comparison is is a good one. They seem to suggest a kind of homelessness. It's a form that that seems homeless and, and that you can't live in. Uh, but you can't pass through it either um, in the way that you, you pass. It's not a photograph like a story is. So it's, I think it's a very, it requires the writer to be really an extremely good writer um, because it can't rely on any of the territories that, that the novel does. And that homelessness is Catherine Ann Porter's too. She had no home and she lied about her life. And, and I think, again, as a, as a predicament for a female writer, it. it it shows more of a future for what the female voice might start to sound like, sort of from here. Um, you know, not not hiding in in other structures. Um, it's it's a very autonomous voice, um, as you will hear in a second.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an autonomous voice, but it's also in this particular story one that is. Uh, connected to her upbringing the first clip that we'll play is not from the story itself it's from her introduction to the reading Um, and she she touches on what it what it was in her upbringing in her family history uh, the substance from which the story uh, emerged she was born in 1890 I think it's important to lay down just a a few biographical tracks she lived uh, until 1980 so she saw pretty much all of the 20th century, and she was married five times. Um, she never had any any children. Um, she wrote a set of uh, story collections. She worked a long, long time, as I said, on the novel Ship of Fools, which was a, a, an enormous commercial success. She taught in a lot of different places and um, w- was incredibly famous as a writer yeah. in the middle a of the, the, the 20th century. It's interesting, one of the things we were talking about uh, before the event is a lot of these events that we've done have, have featured recordings of poets and you can play a poem, talk about the poem, maybe provide some kind of critical or biographical context and then move to the next poem. Um, th- this this is an evening where we're going to attempt to create some conversational arc that begins with the opening of the story and ends with its close. So. If you've not read Noon Wine, you're going to find out what happens in the end, unless there's a you know wave of objection at this particular moment. It's a it's a very kind of gruesome story. You think that's enough before we play?
2: Yeah, I think the only other thing worth mentioning, Cynthia, <laughs> is uh, as I said, she was um, a fabricator, and this was one of the things I think that loosened her. Grip on on status and having any kind of reputation, and I felt that as I feel as a woman, she was specially reviled for <laughs> making up a, a, a sort of story of herself. But in fact, the truth is that she was not orphaned exactly, but her I mean her mother died when she was still a baby, I think, yeah, and two, two years old. So this sort of very rackety life that her father then led the family on, and and she ended up um, sort of living with her grandmother, and there was poverty, and there was Anyway, she reinvented herself as a sort of Southern Belle and sort of developed a, a kind of manner, I think, that, that was that. And so when you, this story is about poor working people o- on the land and about violence and, and self-realization, and it is an amazing, and Flannery O'Connor is a kind of good sort of fortner, um in terms of locating yourself. Um, but in fact, you feel that most of her other stories are about women and and their lives in recognizable culture, but this one is really from a, a different part of her, which she says um, very sort of touchingly in, in the introduction.
0: Yeah, and the, should we play? Yep. The intro, she's going to mention two, 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 two instances of personal history that inform the story. Just keep your ears peeled for that. Here we go.
1: I, at a very early age, I knew the difference between not only just a shotgun and a rifle and a pistol—that would have been shameful—but I knew the difference in the calibers of guns, what kind of a gun was being fired by the sound it made. And I don't remember—I knew that so early that I don't remember how I knew it. And I heard a gun fired. It was a double-barrel shotgun, and both barrels at once. When I was about four years old, and it was way over the hill when we were in the country in the summer. And it was twilight, that kind of green light that comes in the country, in that part of the country, in, the, in Texas, in the, in, in the country, in Texas. And then I heard a long, thin scream, and I was a very young child, and I had never known anything about people being murdered, and I had never heard the sound of a mortally wounded man. But I knew what it was, and that no one told me, but I knew. And that was my first introduction to death and death by violence. Later on, I don't know that these two things go together at all. They may have happened years apart. I came suddenly into my grandmother's sitting room and she was, sitting, she was there with a strange man, a long, wild, long-moustached, draggled, discouraged man. And he was shouting at her telling her something that he wanted her to know, and there was a little sad woman with a little flat straw hat with faded flowers sitting near him, twisting her hands. And every once in a while, and all I heard was, he said, I am not guilty. I am not guilty, and if you don't believe me, ask my wife. She won't lie. At that, my grandmother gave me that gesture which said, go away and stay, and I went. So I never did hear the end of that. But. These things, and then the life of certain kind of hired men and women, people who lived in little cabins and worked in fields and lived strangely lonely lives and unaccounted for lives. People hardly knew where they came from or where they went again. They came maybe for a season. Maybe they just worked to help take in the crops, and then they drifted on. I saw a great deal of that. I heard a great deal of talk among men, among my father and his friends, about all kinds of things. But I cannot tell you how this became a story. And I cannot count for some of the elements in it. But I do know that I have not got fiction and fact, what really happened, mixed up with what I have put into this story. And I think one of the really important things for an artist is to know the difference between, well let us say, his symbolic truth and the factual reality on which his story is based. So I make no claims for this at all. It really is a work of fiction. It's called Noonwine and it's the time is 1896 to 1905, and the place is a small South Texas farm.
0: We, uh, we did not excerpt the, the opening of the story because we thought it might be fun for Rachel to read the, uh, the opening paragraph. Um, this, will, this will set the stage and then um, we'll continue on.
2: It is so amazing hearing Catherine Ann Porter's voice. Oh. Now you can channel so. <laughs> The two grubby small boys with toe-colored hair who were digging among the ragweed in the front yard sat back on their heels and said hello when the tall bony man with straw-colored hair turned in at their gate. He did not pause at the gate. It had swung back conveniently half open long ago and was now sunk so firmly on its broken hinges no one thought of trying to close it. He did not even glance at the small boys, much less give them good day. He just clumped down his big square dusty shoes, one after the other, steadily, like a man following a plow, as if he knew the place well and knew where he was going and what he would find there. Rounding the right hand corner of the house under the row of chinaberry trees, he walked up to the side porch where Mr. Thompson was pushing a big swing churn back and forth.
0: So, the, the stranger who comes to the farm is Olaf Helton. Uh, you're in a lot more about him as the story goes on. We will learn a lot more about him, but he's, he's looking for work, and he's come to the Thompson farm. Those are Mr. Thompson's sons playing out front, and uh, it's a dairy farm. Mr. Thompson it, has purchased it uh, with, I think, money from his wife, or his wife's family. Something related to his, his wife wanting a dairy farm and mm. him not wanting one. And one of the excerpts I think we'll hear later will go into what Thompson doesn't like, and as a result, won't do. So it's not a it's not a prosperous or productive dairy farm. And when Helton comes on the scene, um, things are things are going to change. And and as we alluded to earlier, the um, the reporter is is talking about being very clear of what's fact and what's fiction. This this was the the kind of upbringing that. She had. She was familiar with with these people. She was familiar with uh, small farms. Um, she was familiar with how they talked, and I think that's something that will will come out in the excerpts that we've uh, we've chosen, um, just to move the story along. Is there is there anything that you would want to to add about um, the next excerpt? Comes a few pages into into the narrative.
2: Well, so I think what is. Um I'm actually going to, sorry to bore everyone by reading more, but so Edmund Wilson wrote an essay about Catherine Ann Porter that um, is, it's quite a sort of funny essay, which again has some, some meaning in terms of um, the difficulty of this extremely sort of high-flying male critic in, in truly accepting the seriousness of this woman's, work, I mean, and he does. He sees she's a great artist, but it, it sticks in his craw to, to have to say so. Um, so it's quite, it's quite a sort of odd. But anyway, he gives a very good explanation of what she does as an artist that is so distinctive and that um, is, is very much on display uh, in this story. Uh, to the reviewer, Miss Porter is baffling because one cannot take hold of her work in any of the obvious ways. She makes none of the melodramatic or ironic points that are the stock in trade of ordinary short story writers. She falls into none of the usual patterns, and she does not show anyone's influence. She does not exploit her personality, either inside or outside her work. And her writing itself makes a surface so smooth that the critic has little opportunity to point out peculiarities of color or weave. If he is tempted to say that the effect is pale, he is prevented by the realization that Miss Porter writes English of a purity and precision almost unique in contemporary American fiction. The limpidity of the sentence, the exactitude of the phrase, are deceptive in that the thing they convey continues to seem elusive even after it has been communicated. These stories are not illustrations of anything that is reducible to a moral law or a political or social analysis or even a principle of human behavior. What they show us are human relations in their constantly shifting phases and in the moments of which their existence is made. There is no place for general reflections. You are to live through the experience as the characters do. And yet the writer has managed to say something about the values involved in the experience. But what is it? So I mean, I think what that adds up to is uh, this is what writing looks like when it uh, has no egotism in it. Catherine Ann Porter is is a strikingly unegotistical writer. Um, And she has chosen this broken down farm with these two discouraged, but, good people, and they're two um, pretty ropey, rackety children. The wife has an illness, the husband is a sort of weak willed but but sort of genial person. Um, she She has chosen these people, and, and she proceeds to show you them literally giving birth to themselves through the act of consciousness, through the and through that consciousness uh, flowing through reality and through real events. Um, So I think the real sort of question she's asking is um, about character and what it is. And it is definitely not (laughs) a thing to be performed. Uh, It it is a thing that through consciousness is always in, in an act of becoming. Um, And what fate is, is is character (laughs) becoming and then reaching an an impasse because it it has collided with with reality and that's what happens in this story.
0: Not to give away the ending yet. um, But one one I think uh, interesting note from her life and thinking about how she made these stories, the novel that she wrote that was a commercial success, she labored on forever. But in a lot of the work that she composed, and especially a story like Noon Wine, she said she wrote it in a trance-like state. She went to a hotel in Pennsylvania in the early 30s, and she wrote it in about a week. So as, as far as this idea of how she channels these characters and the, the, um, the story that she's given to us, it's it's an interesting thing thing to note. I'm trying to think of anything else to say. So Helton gets the job because you know he works cheap and he's come from nowhere, and Thompson doesn't know what else he should do. And um, the the next passage, if you want to play it now, um, yeah, is, is so about him being good
2: at what he does. Yeah, so he's a he's a completely silent and slightly disturbing Swede, Mr. Helton, uh, who. All he does is, other than work, is play the same tune over and over again on his harmonica. And the tune we find out at the end is called Noon Wine. Um, and it's a Scandinavian tune with a slightly sinister meaning. Um, so, in the next extract, Mr. Thompson has hired Mr. Helton, and Mrs. Thompson, who's endlessly lying in her bed with the blinds down because the sun hurts her eyes, sort of gets up and looks outside and realizes that Mrs. Thompson has hired someone who looks even more useless than the last person he hired. And so she's had this great sort of series of thoughts, of, of, even though she loves her husband, of how infuriating, infuriating his sort of failure to, to make things work is. So she, she has got Helton down as a, as a sort of loser, basically. But then she goes to look in the milk house and sees what he's done.
1: The milk house was only another shack of weather-beaten boards nailed together hastily years before because they needed a milk house. It was meant to be temporary, and it was, already shapeless, leaning this way and that over a perpetual cool trickle of water that fell from a little grot, almost choked with pallid ferns. No one else in the whole countryside had such a spring on his land. Mr. and Mrs. Thompson felt they had a fortune in that spring if ever they got around to doing anything with it. Rickety wooden shelves clung at hazard in the square around the small pool where the larger pails of milk and butter stood, fresh and sweet in the cold water. One hand supporting her flat, pained side, the other shading her eyes, Mrs. Thompson leaned over and peered into the pails. The cream had been skimmed and set aside. There was a rich roll of butter. The wooden moulds and shallow pans had been scrubbed and scalded for the first time in who knows when. The barrel was full of buttermilks ready for the pigs and the weanling calves. The hard packed dirt floor had been swept smooth. Mrs. Thompson straightened up again, smiling tenderly. She had been ready to scold him, a poor man who needed a job, who had just come there and who might not have been expected to do things properly at first. There was nothing she could do to make up for the injustice she had done him in her thoughts, but to tell him how she appreciated his good clean work finished already in no time at all. She ventured near the door of the shack with her careful steps. Mr. Helton opened his eyes, stopped playing, and brought his chair down straight, but did not look at her or get up. She was a little frail woman with long, thick brown hair in a braid, a suffering, patient mouth, and diseased eyes which cried easily. She wove her fingers into an eye-shade, thumbs on temples, and, winking her tearful lids, said with a polite little manner, "'How to do, sir?' I'm Miss Thompson, and I want to tell you I think you did real well in the milk house. It's always been a hard place to keep. He said, that's all right, in a slow voice, without moving. Miss Thompson waited a minute. That's a pretty tune you're playing. Most folks don't seem to get much music out of a harmonica. Mr. Helton sat humped over, long legs sprawling, his spine in a bow, running his thumb over the square mouse tops, except for his moving hand he might have been asleep. The harmonica was a big, shiny new one, and Mrs. Thompson, her gaze wandering about, counted five others, all good and expensive, standing in a row on the shelf beside his cot. <coughs> he must carry them around in his jumper pocket, she thought, and noted there was not a sign of any other possession lying about. I see you're mighty fond of find music, she said, we used to have an old accordion, and Mr. Thompson could play it right smart, but the little boys broke it up. Mr. Helton stood rather suddenly, and the chair clattered under him, his knees straightened, though his shoulders did not, and he looked at the floor as if he were listening carefully. You know how little boys are, said Miss Thompson. You'd better set them harmonicas on a high shelf, or they'll be after them. They're great hands for getting into things. I try to learn them, but it don't do much good. Mr. Helton, in one wide gesture of his long arms, swept his harmonicas up against his chest and from there transferred them in a row to the ledge where the roof joined to the wall. He pushed them back almost out of sight. That'll do, maybe, said Miss Thompson. Now I wonder, she said, turning and closing her eyes helplessly against the stronger western light. I wonder what became of them little tads. I can't keep up with them. She had a way of speaking about her children as if they were rather troublesome nephews on a prolonged visit.
0: Maybe we'll say something more about Catherine and Porter's own childhood. Um, as Rachel said, she died when uh, Catherine was only two years old. They moved to the paternal grandma's house, and it was it was this paternal grandmother um, who in um, was really formative uh, for for. Um, for Catherine Porter, Catherine Porter was born Cali. Uh, she took the name Catherine after her grandma passed. This this was the grandma who um, was independent spirited, who um, told tall tales about the family war which included those who would served in the War of eighteen twelve, those who uh, had served in the Confederate Army.
2: Oh, and, a, and a biological link to Daniel Boone. Daniel Boone,
0: right? So. <laughs> Um, Catherine Ann Porter absorbs all of this legend uh, from her paternal grandma uh, growing up as a girl in uh, southern Texas. She, she begins to stage theatrical productions on her grandma's porch as, as early as, you know, age eight. She writes her first novel at age five. I mean, this is in, in later interviews, she, she talks of the experience of living with, with her grandma as being both formative and also this, from the earliest age, she knew she wanted to be a writer. Um, this is somebody who knew from from the earliest possible moment that this was what she was going to devote her, her life to. It didn't, I think, mean being a successful commercial writer. Uh, it just meant that she was going to tell stories.
2: But I think given what... You just said about this this uh, embroidering of of the past that that um, and of their situation that she sort of grew up listening to, um, and she sort of gives that, a bit of that in her introduction where she's talking about guns and uh, you know there's a little bit of sort of possibly a bit of mythologizing going on there. It's quite hard to hear her. Her voice is is yeah, it's it's um not, not it's not a terribly clear recording. But the story that she told um in that introduction of the first time she heard a double barreled shotgun. If if anyone didn't catch that, what she's saying is that at age four she was sort of wandering around in the in the countryside and heard a gun go off and heard a man screaming uh, and that man had been murdered so so age four she hears this person be murdered sort of over the hedge um and i think her description of that because she also in in that recording describes the the green light um the very peculiar green light of that part of the countryside at that time of year and that's such a good example of why i love her writing um, that she she does not exaggerate and she doesn't she's never extreme and she sees reality as as the total <laughs> equipoise between the good and the bad that it is um, a character is somebody like these characters in the story who has virtues, and and good things about them, and and terrible things about them. And and those things are are balanced in the most extraordinarily humane way. Uh, The marriage between the Thompsons is an absolutely amazing portrait of love, of what love really looks like, um, and, and its destruction in the end. So that when something extreme does happen, as in her story about hearing the gunshot, I mean, it's what Edmund Wilson said, it's, it really is happening. It, you are watching the thing happening because she's been so careful not to exaggerate anything else and always to balance, you know, these, the children of Mrs. Thompson are, are pretty sort of dreadful boys and yet Mrs. Thompson loves them so much and, and can't bear to see them punished. And, you know, so these things are always held in, in a balance um, and it's a really amazing writerly world to live in.
0: Yeah, and, and the story just kind of hobbles along uh, with Helton having turned the farm around uh, uh, up until, you know, the moment. We're, we're going to get more uh, of, of the, these, these kids who, because Helton is from far away and a foreigner and this man of mystery, you know, they ridicule him. And you're going to get, I think, in, in the next excerpt, a sense of how the Thompsons uh, are as, as parents of these of these boys who um, are, are thought of as, as the inheritors of the farm, and so there is always this question of what, what is this dairy farm in the present, and also what, what is it going to be um, when the next generation takes it over? Should we play that?
1: Yeah, so yeah. in
2: this extract, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson are talking about Mr. Helton and the fact that he never talks, and whether or not that's a good thing.
1: My goodness, Ellie, said Mr. Thompson, we've got to raise him. We can't just let him grow up hog wild. She went on in another tone. That mister Helton seems all right, even if he can't be made to talk. Wonder how he comes to be so far from home. Like I said, he isn't nobody's jaw, said Mr Thompson, but he sure knows how to lay out the work. I guess that's the main thing around here. Country's full of fellers trampin' round looking for work. Mrs. Thompson was gathering up the dishes. She now gathered up Mr Thompson's plate from under his chin. To tell you the honest truth, she remarked, I think it's a mighty good change to have a man around the place who knows how to work and to keep his mouth shut. Means he'll keep out of our business. Not that we've got anything to hide, but it's convenient. That's a fact, said Mr. Thompson. Ho, ho, he shouted suddenly. Means you can do all the talking, huh? The only thing went on Miss Thompson is this. he don't eat already enough to suit me. "'I like to see a man sit down and relish a good meal. "'My grandma used to say it was no use putting dependence "'on a man who won't sit down and make out his dinner. "'I hope it won't be that way this time. "'Tell you the truth, Ellie,' said Mr. Thompson, "'picking his teeth with a fork and leaning back in the best of good humors. "'I always thought your grandma was a terrible old fool. "'She'd just say the first thing that popped into her head "'and call it God's wisdom.' My grandma wasn't anybody's fool. Nine times out of ten, she knew what she was talking about. I always say the first thing you think is the best thing you can say. Well, said Mr. Thompson, going into another shout, you're so refined about that goat story, you just try speaking out in mixed company sometime. You just try it. Suppose you happen to be thinking about a hen and a rooster. Hey, I reckon you'd shock the Baptist minister. He gave her a good pinch on her thin little rump. "'No more meat on you, nor rabbit,' he said fondly. "'Now I like corn-fed.' <clears throat> "'Mrs. Thompson looked at him, open-eyed and blushed. "'She could see better by lamplight. "'Why, Mr. Thompson, sometimes I think you're the evilest-minded man that ever lived.' "'She took a handful of hair on the crown of his head and gave it a good, slow pull. "'That's to show you how it feels, pinching so hard.' When you're supposed to be playing, she said gently.
0: There are things, after we've been through uh, the story, uh, that, that appear along the way that, knowing its end, you can't help but see as, 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 I don't think you'd say that Porter planted them there, but you see them differently. Um, th- these sections of the story... Involving the transformation of the farm and domestic life, Re- read without conflict um, and fairly, you know, happily. But the idea that she would she would call her husband an evil-minded is something that um, has a, appears in a different light um, later on, mm-hmm. a, a, as as you'll see. But before before we get there, the, the next excerpt follows right on the heels mm-hmm. of that one. Do um, do you, you want to add something, or, or do you want? Um,
2: so uh, yeah, the next part just goes straight on from what, what we've just heard and um, it's a really really beautiful passage this where it's a sort of good and rareish example of an artist succeeding in fusing their artistic vision and lyricism with the perception of a an ordinary character who it could be argued wouldn't <laughs> you, you might not imagine that a person would of
3: that kind would one size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes
0: nice dress uh it's a it's a t-shirt
3: until you tried it on same goes for your health care PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss.
2: See the world in this way, um, and, and it's that kind of... I suppose respect and, and humaneness um, in, in being completely confident that how she, as one of you know, the sort of highest type of artist, sees something is, is also going to be how her character, Mr. Thompson, sees it. So he's talking about why he doesn't like um, dairy farming and having chickens and, and other livestock.
1: In spite of his situation in life, Mr. Thompson had never been able to outgrow his deep conviction that running a dairy and chasing after chickens was woman's work. He was fond of saying that he could plow a furrow, cut sorghum, shuck corn, handle a team, build a corn crib, as well as any man. Buying and selling, too, were man's work. Twice a week he drove the spring wagon to market with the fresh butter, a few eggs, fruits in that proper season, sold them, pocketed the change, and spent it as seemed best, being careful not to dig into Mrs. Thompson's pin-money. But from the first, the cows worried him, coming up regularly twice a day to be milked, standing there reproaching him with their smug female faces. Calves worried him, fighting the rope and strangling themselves until their eyes bulged, trying to get at the teeth. Wrestling with a calf unmanned him like having to change a baby's diaper. Milk worried him, coming bitter sometimes, drying up, turning sour. Hens worried him, cackling, clucking, hatching up when you least expected it and leading their broods into the barnyards where the horses could step on them, dying of roop and rye neck and getting plagues of chicken lice, laying eggs all over God's creation so that half of them were spoiled before a man could find them. In spite of a rack of nests Mrs. Thompson set out for him in the feed room, hens were a blasted nuisance. Slopping hogs was hide man's work in Mr. Thompson's opinion. Killing hogs was a job for the boss, but scraping them and cutting them up was for the hired man again, and again woman's proper work was dressing, meat, smoking, pickling, and making lard and sausages. All his carefully limited fields of activity were related somehow to Mr. Thompson's feeling for the appearance of things, his own appearance in the sight of God and man. It don't look right was his final reason for not doing anything that he did not wish to do.
0: I I think this idea also of uh, looking at sections like this differently from the perspective of, of the stories and what what Thompson will do and won't do implies sometimes uh, or, or entirely that um, he's in control of his actions. The second half of the story is a rumination on when, when Thompson acts, is he acting intentionally or has he entered in some kind of altered state Hmm. i don't know the more the more that you read this story i think i'm always struck we talked a little bit about this on monday night the the difference between reading a story and and hearing a story you read a story um, you can go ahead and flip back a few pages um at, at this point in in that evening in 1952 she'd been reading for about 45 minutes you know and and while much of that audience would have been familiar with this work. Even even so, there are all of these things textually that I think you can appreciate as, as, a, as a reader that maybe as a listener are, are harder to, to capture. And I think that's just something about the, the nature of, of sort of collective listening and being told a story as, as opposed to reading it um, for, for yourself. Should we move to the next one, which is sort of...
2: Yeah, so now something happens and we're (laughs) in a, a, um, this is a clear omen. Um, So I think one of the interesting things about this story is that, uh, and I guess another story or book that could compare with it is In Cold Blood in in terms of a, a writer really trying to represent the randomness and sort of amorality, really, of action. And Truman Capote, in that book, shows that as as a fairly malign process of just thoughtlessness. And and yeah. Uh, and in this story, it's a very different thing. One is very used to reading, and you only realise it when you read this. You're so used to reading about people who are far more constructed by their society, by the, the sort of written or unwritten rules of etiquette and and of gender roles as mr thompson has just talked about and um religion and uh, these characters are much more scrappily formed that they vaguely have an idea of what a man is what a woman is what the proper roles for people are how you ought to bring up children but in fact they're they're kind of lazy they're sort of benign and well-meaning um, but they they're also quite unlucky they have a, a difficult life but but so it all sort of bumbles along so as a preparation for violence um, you know these are not violent people um, and yet they are conscious people and that's really sort of where she's taking us um, and we don't know <laughs> because we suspect that mr. Helton is a, a well, he is the unknown, and and this incident that's about to happen is the first sign that um, we're in the presence of um, violence and, and catastrophe.
3: Yeah,
0: someone who's who's capable of more than just making a dairy farm <laughs> operate smoothly.
1: In the second year, something happened that made Mrs. Thompson uneasy. The kind of thing she could not put into words, hardly into thoughts, and if she tried to explain to Mr. Thompson, It would have sounded worse than it was, or not bad enough. It was that kind of queer thing that seems to be giving a warning, and yet nearly always nothing comes of it. It was on a hot, still spring day, and Mrs. Thompson had been down to the garden patch to pull some new carrots and green onions and string beans for dinner. As she worked sunbonnet low over her eyes, putting each kind of vegetable in a pile by itself in her basket, she noticed how neatly Mr. Helton weeded and how rich the soil was. He'd spread it all over with manure from the cow barns and worked it in in the fall, and the vegetables were coming up fine and full. She, worked, she walked back under the nubbly little fig trees where the unpruned branches leaned almost to the ground and the thick leaves made a cool screen. Mrs. Thompson was always looking for shade to save her eyes. So she, looking idly about, saw through the screen a sight that struck her as very strange. If it had been a noisy spectacle, it would have been quite natural. It was the silence that struck her. Mr. Helton was shaking Arthur by the shoulders ferociously, his face most terribly fixed and pale. Arthur's head snapped back and forth, and he had not stiffened in resistance as he did when Mrs. Thompson tried to shake him. His eyes were rather frightened, but surprised too, probably more surprised than anything else. Herbert stood by meekly watching. Mr. Helton dropped Arthur and seized Herbert and shook him with the same methodical ferocity, the same face of hatred. Herbert's mouth crumpled as if he would cry, but he made no sound. Mr. Helton let him go, turned and strode into the shack, and the little boys ran as if for their lives without a word. They disappeared around the corner to the front of the
2: house.
0: Do you want to tell them what the boys did?
2: Okay, so the, the naughty little boys have stolen his harmonicas and he... Mrs. Thompson is gathering her vegetables and, and thinking about how much their life has improved in the two years since Mr. Tom, Mr. Helton has been there and how beautifully the beds are weeded. And um, she's putting these vegetables in her basket and she looks through some trees and sees Mr. Helton shaking her children by the scruff of the neck completely silently and incredibly violently and so this is an, an extraordinary, it's about halfway through the story and it's an extraordinary place for a writer to have got us to so economically, really, where you realise what she gives you to realise is the unattainability of happiness. It, it is such a, an extraordinary moment where you've, <laughs> you've believed in something along with them and, and in uh, this strange, benign, I suppose, way of interacting and proceeding Um, and the the very small miracle of this person sort of turning their lives around and then she sees him in this uh, extraordinary act of violence against her children. Um, And it's mentioned as something that happened in the past. So in fact, the present of the story has gone beyond that. So Mrs. Thompson has kept it essentially to herself and has lived with this knowledge, which in terms of morally where she ends up is um, kind of important. So she's, in a sense, ducked away from the truth because she is so desperate to defend the prospect of happiness, which you know now, having been told this, that it can't be defended. And then from here on in, we're into the the sort of violent denouement, really, of... of
0: Right. Helton isn't dismissed for abusing the Thompson boys for messing with—you don't mess with Heldon's harmonicas. It's one of the lessons you learn in the mm-hmm. story. He is not dismissed. He stays. No. He stays on because he is essential to the the Thompsons' well-being and their uh, being able to pass that well-being on to
2: their children. But I mean, in fact, one of the interesting things in the story is the account of parenthood that it gives, and it's it's a very entertaining. So essentially, the Thompsons. Spend all their time hoping that the boys won't do anything naughty because they don't want to have to tell them off because they've seen how ineffectual it is, how ineff- ineffectual they are as disciplinarians, and and it's just a very, it's, it's actually rather a sort of modern um, representation of parenthood. So they they are very stern with the boys about playing with Mr. Helton's harmonicas, but but essentially. Uh, they want everything to return and for, to normal and for everyone to forget about it as quickly as possible. So there's lots of threatening to whip their backsides, but, but everyone's desperate to, to forget that it happened. And seven years
0: passes, right? Yeah. <laughs> that was year the second year of, of Helton um, at the farm.
3: In the ninth year,
0: Porter says, uh, another stranger comes to, to visit. And uh, the next excerpt that we will hear is... Uh, in the midst of a conversation between uh, this stranger, whose name is Homer
2: Hatch, right? Yeah, and, and he can't Mr. stop. Thompson. Yeah, he can't stop talking, and he's an evil. He's the devil. I mean, he's an evil apparition. And Helton and Hatch are these <laughs> two very opposing figures. Um, but you don't you don't know why
0: he's there, right? It gradually uh, comes to light that the Reason that he's come to the Thompson farm is Helton, and specifically something from Helton's past.
2: Yeah, so he's come to to so he's a bounty hunter, and Helton is a wanted man, and he's come to um, bring him in. So the interesting thing is that how Mr. Thompson works out that Mr. Hatch is, is evil is through language and the way that Mr. Hatch uses language. So they have this conversation, and this is an extract of, of that conversation. He never acted crazy to
1: me, said Mr. Thompson. He always acted like a sensible man to me. He never got married, for one thing. And he works like a horse. And and he don't drink. And I'll bet he's got the first cent I paid him after he landed here. And he never says a word, much less swear. And he don't waste time running around Saturday nights. And if he's crazy, said Mr. Thompson, why, I think I'll go crazy myself for a change. Ho-ho, said Miss Church. Hey, that's good. Ho-ho. I hadn't thought of it just like that. Yeah, that's right. Let's all go crazy and get rid of our wives and save our money, hey? He smiled unpleasantly, showing his little rabbit teeth. Mr. Thompson felt he was being misunderstood. He turned around and motioned toward the open window back of the honeysuckle trellis. Let's move off down here a little, he said. I ought to have thought of that before. His visitor bothered Mr. Thompson. He had a way of taking the words out of Mr. Thompson's mouth, turning them round and mixing them up until Mr. Thompson didn't know himself what he had said. "'My wife's not very strong,' said Mr. Thompson. "'She's been a kind of an invalid now, going on 14 years. "'It's mighty tough on a poor man having sickness in the family. "'She had four operations,' he said proudly, "'one right after the other, but they didn't do any good.' For five years, hand-running, I just turned every nickel I made over to the doctors. Upshot is, she's a mighty delicate woman. My old woman, said Mr. Homer T. Hatch, had a back like a mule, yes, sir. That woman could have moved the barn with her bare hands if she'd ever took the notion. I used to say it was a good thing she didn't know her own strength. She's dead now, though. That kind wear out quicker than the puny ones. I never had much use for a woman always complaining. I'd get rid of her mighty quick, yes, sir, mighty quick. It's just like you say, a dead loss keeping one of them up. This was not at all what Mr. Thompson had heard himself say. He had been trying to explain that a wife as expensive as his was a credit to a man. She's a mighty reasonable woman, said Mr. Thompson, feeling baffled. But I wouldn't answer for what she'd say or do if she found out we had a lunatic on the place all this time. They had moved away from the window. Mr. Thompson took Mr. Hatch the front way because if he went the back way, they would have to pass Mr. Helton's shack. For some reason, he didn't want the stranger to see or talk to Mr. Helton. It was strange, but that was the way Mr. Thompson felt about it.
0: Do you want to tell them what uh, Hatch (laughs) says uh, is Helton's crime?
2: So... Helton's crime is killing his brother, um, who... His own brother. His own brother. Not Hatch's brother. his own brother in uh, North Dakota, where they both worked as hired men on a farm. And his brother had taken his harmonica and lost it or broken it, I can't remember which, and refused to replace it. And in a fit of anger, Mr. Helton ran his pitchfork through his brother. Uh, and how he's been found out is that he's saved all of the money he's earned on the Thompson farm, and he has sent it to their mother, uh, so his mother and his dead brother's mother, obviously. And she couldn't help herself <laughs> and has let the cat out of the bag as, as, uh, to where he is. So this song, Noon Wine, uh, Mr. Hatch explains to Mr. Thompson the meaning of, of the song which is a very strange, um, so the, the lyric is represented as, it's a drinking song and it, it, the spirit is um, that I'm so happy and it's a, I'm having such a wonderful morning that I drink all of the liquor that, that I ought to be saving till, to drink at noon after I've done, I've done my work, uh, I drink it now. Um, and uh, this is the song that Mr. Helton has been playing over and over again. So it has a very, very strange meaning that that then sort of spreads all over the story that you've just read. And it's very, I think it's uh, very hard to to sort of understand um, that meaning. So Mr. Hatch, I'm going to give away the plot. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Mr. Thompson does not succeed in getting the better of Mr. Hatch, who he begins to hate more and more and more. And these great moral chunks are being prized out of his heart right in front of you by Mr. Hatch. So the fact that Mr. Thompson realizes he loves Mr. Helton, he, Mr. Helton is his friend. Uh, he doesn't want to, he wants to defend him. He hates this man, Mr. Hatch, and, feel, and this hatred is, is such an extraordinary, murderous feeling. Um, so, so this incredible emotional state uh, and yet he also is not manly enough to get Mr. Hatch off his property. And he, because he thinks Mr. Hatch is more, um, I don't know, bourgeois or important than he is, he, he's still sort of bowing and scraping to him in a way and, and sort of despising himself. Um, and then Mr. Helton walks around the corner and Mr. Hatch has been showing uh, Mr. Thompson his uh, Bowie knife because they've been cutting their plugs of tobacco and comparing them. And Mr. Helton clearly sees Mr. Hatch with the Bowie knife and thinks that he's about to attack Mr. Thompson. And Mr. Thompson sees something that he thinks is Mr. Hatch stabbing Mr. Helton in the stomach as Mr. Helton comes forward to help Mr. Thompson. And Mr. Thompson, and the amazing, his amazing inability to understand how this happens or remember it, or he, he, there's an ax lying nearby for chopping wood and he picks it up and he smashes it over Mr. Hatch's head and kills him. The story sort of ends there. And then there's a a, a next bit where it's a few months later and Miss, Mr. and Mrs. Thompson have become the couple that Catherine Ann Porter remembers from her grandmother's sitting room as a child. This discouraged draggled man and his silent wife so they basically get their carriage and their broken down old horse and they so mr thompson cannot he's only happy when he's telling the story of what happened so he's he's acquitted in court as he gets the lawyer manages to um tell it as a story of self-defense, which is the typical Catherine M. Porter touch. Um, so it's fine. Uh, and yet it's not fine for Mr. Thompson. And he's only happy when he's telling the story and, and trying to prove his innocence. So he and his wife every day travel miles in this carriage. And they go and visit every single person in their community and sit there. And, and he tries to prove his innocence. These people who react in numerous ways and, but essentially don't care and think what they think about him. Um, so, and everything is spoiled, and the, children, the boys are now grown up, and they, their dad is a murderer. They, even though he got off, he's a murderer, and Mrs. Thompson, her husband, is a murderer. Um, so the next extract we hear, we, we find them in this state of sort of dreadful upset leading to, to the sort of extinction of their... Family world, Before we play it,
0: do you, want, do you want to say what happens to Helton, or do you want to wait? Oh,
2: so uh, the, Helton ran away from the scene of the crime, which he hadn't committed, and the police and their dogs and the sheriff and the whatever hunted him down and um, killed him in a vicious and violent way. So that was the end of him. They went as if they were glad to go. The boys outside, Mr. Thompson into his bedroom,
1: <coughs> she heard him groaning to himself as he took off his shoes and heard the bed creak as he lay down. Mrs. Thompson opened the icebox and felt the sweet coldness flow out of it. She had never expected to have an icebox, much less did she hope to afford to keep it filled with ice. It still seemed like a miracle after two or three years. There was the food, cold and clean, all ready to be warmed over. She would never have had that icebox if Mr. Helton hadn't happened along one day, just for the strangest luck. So saving and so managing, so good, thought Mrs. Thompson, her heart swelling until she feared she would faint again, standing there with the door open and leaning her head upon it. She simply could not bear to remember Mr. Helton, with his long, sad face and silent ways, who had been so quiet and so harmless, who had worked so hard and helped Mr. Thompson so much, running through the hot fields and woods, being hunted like a mad dog, everybody turning out with ropes and guns and sticks to catch and tie him. <gasps> God, said Mrs. Thompson, in a long, dry moan, kneeling before the icebox and fumbling inside for the dishes, even if they did pile mattresses all over the jail floor and against the walls, and five men there to hold him to keep him from hurting himself anymore. He was already hurt too badly. He couldn't have lived anyway. Mr. Barbie, the sheriff, told her about it. He said, Well, they didn't aim to hurt him, but they had to catch him, Miss Thompson. He was crazy as a loon. He picked up rocks and tried to brain every man that got near him. He had two harmonicas in his jumper pocket, said the sheriff, but they fell out in the scuffle, and Mr. Helton tried to pick them up again, and that's when they finally got him. They had to be rough, Ms. Thompson. He fought like a wildcat. Yes, thought Mrs. Thompson again with the same bitterness. Of course, they had to be rough. They always have to be rough. Mr. Thompson can't argue with a man and get him off the place peaceably. No. She thought, standing up, shutting the icebox, he has to kill somebody. He has to be a murderer and ruin his boy's lives and cause Mr. Helton to be killed like a mad dog.
2: So I think what's sort of amazing about Mrs. Thompson's, because we sort of we're with her, really, at this point for quite a few more pages, and her feeling of disenchantment with men and with violence as the, the work of men. And I suppose you're seeing a sort of woman with nowhere to go and no reason to believe that life should be any other way, thinking that life should have been some other way. Um, and so she essentially casts off her husband sort of morally and emotionally as, as um, a, the... the Ally of violence, but in fact, what we know is that Mr. Thompson is in a state of extraordinary psychological torture because he he can't understand the moral structure of the act he's committed, and so it's this endless wanting to go and tell it over and over and over again. Which is this essentially, it's this pretty simple guy sort of searching for therapy. before anyone particularly knew what that was, um, so it's a very interesting bit of character understanding from her. So um, I'm just going to read the last bit of the story, which um, is Mr. Thompson essentially realizing that he's he is not he cannot figure this out. He can't understand his actions, um, which appeared to him to come so naturally and to be just, and, and are held in such revulsion by others but but he but he's not accused of a crime so that, so this is the his guilt is and his confusion are impossible for him to kind of get control of Mr Thompson Thompson went through the kitchen there he lighted the lantern took a thin pad of scratch paper and a stub pencil from the shelf where the boys kept their school books he swung the lantern on his arm and reached into the cupboard where he kept the guns the shotgun was there to his hand primed and ready a man never knows when he may need a shotgun. He went out of the house without looking around or looking back when he had left it, past his barn without seeing it, and struck out to the farthest end of his fields, which ran for half a mile to the east. So many blows had been struck at Mr. Thompson, and from so many directions, he couldn't stop anymore to find out where he was hit. He walked on over plowed ground and over meadow, going through barbed wire fences cautiously, putting his gun through, through first, he could almost see in the dark now his eyes were used to it finally he came to the last fence here he sat down back against a post lantern at his side and with the pad on his knee moistened the stub pencil and began to write before almighty god the great judge of all before whom I, I am about to appear i do hereby solemnly swear that i did not take the life of mr homer t hatch on purpose it was done in defense of mr helton i did not aim to hit him with the axe but only to keep him off mr helton He aimed a blow at Mr. Helton who was not looking for it. It was my belief at the time that Mr. Hatch would have taken the life of Mr. Helton if I did not interfere. I've told all this to the judge and the jury and they let me off, but nobody believes it. This is the only way I can prove I'm not a cold blooded murderer like everybody seems to think. If I had been in Mr. Helton's place, he would have done the same for me. I still think I'd done the only thing there was to do. My wife, Mr. Thompson stopped here to think a while. He wet the pencil point with the tip of his tongue and marked out the last two words. He sat a while, blacking out the words until he had made a neat oblong patch where they had been and started again. It was Mr. Homer T. Hatch who came to do wrong to a harmless man. He caused all this trouble, and he deserved to die. But I'm sorry it was me who had to kill him. He licked the point of his pencil again and signed his full name carefully, folded the paper, and put it in his outside pocket. Taking off his right shoe and sock, he set the butt of the shotgun along the ground with the twin barrels pointed towards his head. It was very awkward. He thought about this a little, leaning his head against the gun mouth. He was trembling, and his head was drumming until he was deaf and blind. But he lay down flat on the earth on his side, drew the barrel under his chin, and fumbled for the trigger with his great toe. That way he could work it." And it's really amazing that this slightly hopeless person that we meet at the beginning is brought to this situation of sort of tragic grandeur, <laughs> um, yeah.
0: On, on the recording, when, when uh, Porter is introduced, Brendan says she's going to read Noon Wine, and then we'll do some questions afterward. Um, she reads for two hours. He comes out at the end for about 10 seconds. Says I, I think that's enough for tonight, but I, I know that Rachel Tonight, we'll take uh, just a few questions <laughs> um, from you all. You spoke about how um, Catherine Ann Porter finds this equipoise um, between the good and bad in characters. And I wondered if that's something you aim to do in your own characters, and if maybe it's something you feel like you've had to work hard to do or ever failed to do.
2: Hmm. Um, it's really hard not to write a. It's hard to write an unpredetermined sentence. It's hard to write an innocent sentence. And one of the things that I love about uh, this writer is the remarkable lack of overtones of class or, or nationality or even gender. Actually, um, it's an incredibly uninflected voice. And I mean, one of the things that I really struggle with in my own work was trying to, to see the, the extent of predetermination that there was in, in my own writing that, that almost what was I thinking was a sentence uh, rather rather sort of unconsciously a sentence that was okay to write but in fact had I not been brought up in the way I was and been the person I am that sentence would seem alien so so yeah, I guess for me the struggle has been to try and actually see <laughs> my work objectively, and then to try and work out how to write sentences that don't have those bits of identity sort of buried in them um, that you're not, you know, so that you're not even aware that they're there. But another person reading them, it's completely clear that they are.
3: You mentioned uh, that Catherine and Porter so uh, that there's maybe a moment to. Um Revisit uh, this uh, her, her status. Um, if that were to happen, if she were revisited and her work sort of um, appreciated in a new way or reappreciated, what impact might that have on authors today?
2: Well, it's. I mean, I mentioned Natalia Ginsberg earlier simply because I, I've sort of watched that happen with her. Suddenly, a, a sort of generation of writers who are essentially trying to. Defend themselves, and at the same time give an honest account of, you know, exactly what they are doing. That has these labels like autofiction, and um, as though they've sort of made that thing up. And uh, whereas, in fact, Miss Hay Ginsburg, very naturally uh, and uh, with enormous intelligence and and sophistication, wrote in that form as as her natural form, as many other. Writers have done in, in the past. So, so I think she arrived at a moment almost to explain or, or be a, 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 to vouch for, even though she did, but to, to be a kind of parent or ancestor of, of this auto fiction, this whole world of autobiography essentially, which has got terribly muddled and um, not the writers, but the, the way in which it's critiqued. Um, and I think Catherine Ann Porter could do something very similar. Um, for form, I guess, and for narrative. I think her, the balance, you know, it's a, it's a real masterclass in, in what hardly ever happens in a contemporary narrative uh, and, and in terms of actually understanding what a story is and what a, a plot is, um, something that you, you live in. You know, you don't tell it to somebody. You don't make it up and tell it to somebody. You create, you recreate it and allow others to, to live in it and through it, and, and if there are to be events or or you know those have to occur um, in a, in a great empty field um, where where ordinariness and normality is. Um, so so I think that it would be very interesting for her to be an object of, of study. I guess in that way, um, in terms of people who think that you know uh, saying that something doesn't have a plot is, <laughs> it's like a. a um, valuable criticism of, of of literary work, and I think also as a, a I mean, I went and visited the um, Harry Ransom Center, which is where a lot of writers' archives are kept, and, and they showed me they'd taken out uh, a early draft typescript of one of her absolutely best stories um, called Holiday, and it was really amazing to sort of hold the thing in my hands, and and but it's it's. It, it looks so like the kind of thing that's in my study at home. So I'm an extremely disorganized and scrappy sort of keeper, you know, and I've thrown loads of stuff away. I've been a single parent. I've moved house a lot. I haven't been able to hang on to things. I and I have I felt really sort of ashamed of that and worried about it in the past and, and thought I wasn't a proper writer because I didn't keep all my notebooks lined up. And, you know, I had children's drawings all over, you know, my manuscripts, and, um, and she, seeing this very tattered, scribbled on, and there's lots of stories in her life history of work being lost, and this story had indeed been lost, and she had then found it 25 years later in a cupboard or something, or in a suitcase. Um, and I felt that really was a different model for, how, for women's lives and, and for what a woman writer, maybe is Um, and I guess I'd like more of that feeling of precariousness and unprotectedness vulnerability I think she's a she's a good example Um, and as I say her reputation's declined in the most extraordinary way and that you know that is a fact and um, I think she could be used to prove a point really about how difficult it is to to for women to defend their own legacy Thank you. Thank you all for coming. Thank you for coming.
3: Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward events.